Yeah, right. What did you say? Was that fun or what? Yes, it was, Eddie. Felt like a Gaither homecoming moment there. It's like, that was so fun. My goodness. There are no songs like the songs that people write out of their heart of love for the Lord. I have a friend whose name is Sean. He served as a U.S. Marine. Avid cyclist. His wife, Tina, was in uh, my youth group, our youth group at Loomis years ago. Sean and I, we stay in touch, and Sean visited our service a while ago, and we track each other's rides on Strava. He's lots, he rides lots faster and lots farther than I do. He's like fast like Marlon and long like Dave Reverts. And anyway, Sean uh, was riding from Battle Creek uh, to his home in Homer <laughs> a couple years ago. Do we have a photograph of this? We have a photograph? And he wrecked his bike. You see the front wheel is gone. Go to the next picture. Because he hit a squirrel. <laughs> if you're going to wreck your bike, I think that's how you want to do it. So a squirrel, so he's going like 20 miles an hour, which in bike language is like wicked fast. And this squirrel runs out and gets lodged in his fork, and it snaps his carbon fiber fork off. And then he landed on his head. So I knew I would want to talk to you about the helmet of salvation today. <laughs> Just kidding. That'll be later. But I do, I do want to illustrate how important it is for us to be adequately prepared for what we're going to face, including the full armor, and that's where we're going in the scriptures today. So please take your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians and chapter 6, and what we're going to do today, we've been teaching, try to be teaching systematically and faithfully a phrase at a time and a word at a time through the epistle to the Ephesians, and today, I'm just going to go off on you. Would that be okay? I just go off on you? That's what's going to happen today. So prepare for this from now to noon. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to take one word in our text. Schemes is the word. Schemes. And we're, we're going to go through the scriptures a bit. And you, you got to be kind of, this is not for sissies. I'm just saying, it's not for sissies today. Because what we want to do is this. We want to go from this passage that talks about really the evil one, and his strategy. And we're going to go through the scriptures, and I want to show you some examples from the Bible of how the evil one works. Now, God has no rival. You want to say amen? That would be the point to say amen. God has no rival. Finally, be strong. Say the next thing. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, or in his mighty power. God has no rival, no rival, but without God, we are no match for Satan and his schemes and his organization. That's why verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 6 say, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the, there's the word, schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This is kind of ominous language. So without God, so God has no rival. 
but without God, we're no match for Satan, his schemes, and his organization. And we must not be careful not to mischaracterize the enemy, assuming that his only work is bizarre or paranormal. Most of what he does is not through paranormal displays. But we dare not overlook the enemy. And I think this is what Paul is pointing out to the Ephesians, and this has been passed down in the providence of God to us. We dare not overlook the enemy. And we dare not mischaracterize the enemy. And, and he would like us to believe that he's confined to darkness. And he is in darkness, but he masquerades, remember, as, a, as ministers, as ministers of light and, and as angels of light and himself as an angel of light. And so what he, his work is dark, but sometimes it appears like light. He, or he'd like us to see him in the bizarrest of terms. He'd like us, like when I was a kid, I was in my neighborhood and the local Baptist church, and I so appreciate our Baptist heritage, Baptist people have done some of the coolest and most creative things to get the gospel to people. And I'm proud of that. But the local Baptist church had vacation Bible school. And so they sent a bus through our neighborhood to gather up kids for the Bible school. And behind the bus was a guy in a red devil outfit on a motorcycle. And he was shaking his fist. That was kind of creative. That stuck in my mind all these years. I hope some kid went to Bible school because of those antics. But he would. But Satan would love it if we thought he was confined to, you know, overweight Baptist guys on a motorcycle in a devil's outfit. Not like that. Or if he, he would love it if we only thought of him in sensational and paranormal terms. And all we really thought about was like what you might see in a movie you shouldn't watch. And, and, and that, would, that would be a way that he deceives us. He would like us to think he cannot use believers or cannot engage believers, but he can. According to Matthew 16, 23 and Acts 5, examples that we'll give a little more detail on later, it specifically tells how he engages even believers. So we dare not misunderstand the enemy. I don't know if you saw the movie The Patriot. It was a, it was a, a, a literary rendering or a cinematic rendering of a true story of an American patriot whose name was Benjamin Martin. Benjamin Martin was a farmer, patriot, soldier, and he became known famously as the ghost soldier. And it was because he was so effective at killing the enemy, he overcame a, a, a group of 20 redcoats alone one day. And they, they couldn't figure out how he did it. But after the dust settled, they realized that he armed his entire family. Even the little children were taught, they were given arms, and they were taught how to use them, and they were able to defend themselves. And so this man's fame grew, but it was because everybody in the family knew how to fight and knew how to use their weapons. And you may not like it, but the scriptures are clear. We are in a deadly conflict. And everybody in the family needs to know how to fight. And everybody in the family needs, how to, knows, needs to know both how to talk and how to use their weapons. Because his strength is supernatural, the evil one. And because his strategy is subtle. And because his structure is sophisticated. We want to read the text again because I won't say anything more profound than what you're going to hear right now. Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Today we focus on the word in verse 11, the schemes of the devil. We have a great God. We have a formidable foe. We have an awesome armor and equipment. In verse 18, you'll see that we have the power of prayer. You want to orient yourself in the series or the series within the series on spiritual warfare in Ephesians. Here's what we've done and what we're going to do. Our first message was, remember this, you are weak, Satan is strong, God is omnipotent, open your eyes. The second message, this one, is know the enemy. Understand how Satan works, some of his schemes. The third message, Lord willing, will be specifics of the armor and prayer and the fourth. And then there may be a bonus message because you've been so good. I may wrap up the five final verses by given the context from Ephesians, or from a, of the story of the Ephesian church that goes from Acts 16, 17 to the meeting with the elders in Miletus from Ephesus in Acts 18. And those last few verses, very fascinating and often overlooked because of it, what we're reading right now just, just so jumps off the page in terms of spiritual warfare. So that's kind of where we are in our messages. So today, three things. Have I lost you yet? Three things. Is the, the, the desire of Satan the devices of Satan, and then briefly his defeat, which we'll, we'll give specifics on later. But what does he want to do and how does he want to do it? And we remember that Paul elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 10, he said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, a, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take, you're familiar with this, every thought captive to obey Christ. And the Bible says that in Romans 8, Paul again in Romans wrote, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God and it cannot. And so both of those passages tell us something about what we ought to expect when it comes to spiritual warfare and that it has a great deal to do with thoughts and our mind. The mind is the battleground. Every imagination of their thoughts was only evil continually. It says in Romans chapter 1, God destroyed the world according to Genesis. They didn't like to retain God in their imagination. Satan's work in the garden involved suggesting a thought to Eve that wasn't quite true. Satan is a thief. He's a murderer, according to Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 44. And Satan's ultimate aim is to destroy you. And there's not a way to describe that as, as wicked as it is. John 10, 10, 
Jesus is no doubt referring to Satan and his dominion when he says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to snuff out life wherever he finds it. That's kill. He wants to possess whatever he cannot have. That's steal. And why we often use the term possess when it comes to demons and devils or oppress. He wants to render everything else useless. That's destroy. And that's you. And that's the people that you love. And that's this church. And he has many devices to do that. That's why Paul said we are not, remember this, ignorant of his devices in chapter 2 and verse 11, which, by the way, that particular device he was talking about was not being willing to forgive a person who God forgave. That's interesting, isn't it? A little aside, you ever met somebody that did something really bad and you thought, they maybe will be able to forgive him, but I'm never going to be able to forgive him? It's like, did you realize that's one of Satan's devices? Not what you thought about, was it? So we must not be ignorant, and that's why we're going to talk about his devices. Now, there are three general tactics, or you could say one with two forks. Here are the three general tactics that you see when you read scriptures about Satan, and that is he's deceptive. And maybe the two forks of that are temptation and accusation, because temptation is a one way that he deceives. He says, hey, why don't you do this? He solicits evil as if it isn't evil or as if it isn't damaging. In that sense, the temptation is deceptive, is a kind of deception. You see that? But then there's something else that he does, and he's called Diablos, right? He's called the, what, accuser. So he loves to accuse he loves to bring up your sin against you. Isn't it interesting? So he wants to tempt you to sin, and when you sin, he wants to accuse you of sin. And that's how he works. That's, those are his names. Deception, temptation, solicitation to evil. Somebody said this, in temptation, he, he wants us to doubt the holiness of God. And in accusation, he wants us to doubt the love and the mercy of God. But if he can get us to, if he can distort our thinking about God, then he can have his way with us. He promises to meet legitimate desires in illegitimate ways, or he, he stirs up uh, a desire to meet a, a, des, a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way, or he'll stir up an illegitimate desire. So you want to be really careful when you're hungry, or when you're angry, or when you're lonely, or when you're tired, or I've noticed in pastoral care of people, especially when people sin against you, watch out what you do when somebody sins against you, when somebody speaks evil against you, when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're weak, when you're lonely, when you're sick, when you feel sorry for yourself. I talk with men a lot. We talk together about the struggle that we have, the mutual struggle that we have in our sins. And we agree that we usually don't sin until we create kind of a, a story in which we feel sorry for ourselves. And then we allow ourselves to do something that's going to be ultimately very damaging. But there's a story that comes out of World War II when, Rom, when Patton, the great war, met Rommel. And Patton says to Rommel, Rommel was famous for writing a book about warfare. And Patton said, I've read your book. I've read your book. And we can, we can say, though we have no interest in like taunting Satan or his demons, we've read the book. And so what we want to do is we want to talk a little bit about how he works. I mentioned already that 
that there is deception involved. And, and there are three things here. And in your notes, you'll see these if you go online, maybe later this afternoon, if you want to scroll through them right now, you can access them on our digital bulletin, a small version in the digital bulletin link, or a full version on the BethelJackson.org link. You actually have my sermon notes, as messy as they are, you see all of them there. And I don't want you to be afraid when you look at those, but there's a lot there. <laughs> there's so much there that if you read it, you might slip out to the restroom. I don't know. But, but, there's just a, but here's, a, here's a three categories of deception. You know, the, this, according to the scriptures, Christian, it's possible for Christians to deceive themselves. And over and over again, I listed about 10 different ways that the Bible says don't be deceived, like deceiving yourself. Here, here's some quick examples. Scriptures are there. You can look online. When we hear the truth and don't act on it, it says you're deceiving yourself. When you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. When you think you're something, when you're not, you're deceiving yourself. It says that two places in the New Testament. When you think you're wise in this age, probably five Four times in the New Testament, once in the Old Testament. When you think you're wise in this age, you're deceiving yourself. In other words, the very phrase, don't deceive yourself, is attached to these things. When we think we're religious, but we don't bridle our tongue, we are deceiving ourselves. When we think that we will reap, but we won't sow, we're deceiving ourselves. When we think the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of heaven, we're deceiving ourselves. When we think we can have fellowship with unbelievers and not be damaged by that, we're deceiving ourselves. So it's possible for Christians to deceive themselves. But if that weren't bad enough, we have false teachers abound. Some are really nice and slick and gifted, and they have good things to say. You know, they, they put their poison in sugar pills. And so there are false signs and wonders, according to the scriptures. There are false prophecies, false tongues, and false teachings. There are false occult cults, false religions, and secret societies. All of, our, all of them are designed to confuse people about what is true. And they attach themselves to meaningful causes like good health, or being against abortion, or reclaiming the culture. It could be any of these things. If you get to Acts 20... Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He meets them in Miletus. And he says, watch out for wolves that come in from among you. And they, they don't spare the flock. But here's the point about deception. Christians can deceive themselves without the devil's help. Christians can be deceived by false teachers. But it's possible for Christians to be deceived by Satan and demons. Probably it's a good place right now to tell you something really important. That, the, that a literary device the Bible uses, and it's a literary device that we often use that sometimes can be confusing. Hear, hear me now. Someone will say, well, that was the devil. Now, when Christians, and even the Bible sometimes say the devil did that, sometimes it means the devil did that. Sometimes it means the system that the devil put in place did that. It's used in a kind of a literary way, in a, in a symbolic way. Sometimes it means that specific demons did it. So every time you have a temptation, it's not the devil himself. He's not omnipresent and he's not omnipotent. He, he's creative. He travels fast. He's experienced. He's evil, but he doesn't do everything himself. So hear this. When the Bible sometimes says the devil, 
Sometimes it means the personal devil himself doing it. You have to read the context and study it. Sometimes it means the devil sent a, probably means the devil sent a demon to do it. Sometimes it means the satanic system in place influenced that. And so that kind of helps us in our thinking. But we as Christians often say, well, the devil this and the devil that and the devil this, as if the devil's just scurrying around everywhere at once. And that's not, not even possible. That's not true. But he is a real personal devil. Now, here are some passages that you probably should hear. 1 John 2.18 says, children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming now. Many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. 1 John 4, these are obviously the Apostle John writing in his little epistle toward the end of his life, warning people, beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see if they are of, the, of God. And you can read that extended passage there where he gives a lot of detail about that. In other words, he's saying this, it's possible for Christians to be deceived by Satan and other demons, demonic spirits. Also in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, the Spirit speaks expressly in the latter times. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I don't want to shock you. Shock you. It's going to be hard for you to hear this. But false religions are demonic in their origin. It's po- every single faithful church sometimes errs. Satan and demons can be involved in that too. But there are whole systems of falsehood that are dragging people to hell. And the scriptures say demons are behind those false systems. And they are large and influential and powerful in our world. And millions of people are going to follow the way to destruction. If you believe what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is, Jesus made that very plain, the wide road that leads to destruction. And that's why Paul, again, wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, no wonder even Satan disguises himself like an angel of light. Or he looks like a religious figure. So it's no surprise. His servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So you can expect false teachers to look real appealing and like light. But the Bible says their end will correspond with their deeds. So he blinds the minds of the unsaved. You see that in 2 Corinthians 4.4 in that famous passage there. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But he also can corrupt or invade the minds of believers. And there are examples of that in the scripture. One passage in 2 Corinthians 11 says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see that warning? So young people, hear me out. This is like life and death. You are going to be tempted in ways you don't expect to be tempted. You're going to be tempted by things that look good, that seem good, that feel good. You're going to be tempted by things that are religious, along with other bald solicitations to direct evil. You will also have ambushes, false teachers. Somebody's going to come along that you're going to admire. They're going to say things in a, in a really wonderful and unique way. They're going to be smart and gifted and pretty or handsome and creative. And they're going to tell you something that would, that would cost you your soul if you weren't born again or will cost you your soul if you're not. So this is really serious. The Bible doesn't warn about this just in a few places. So there is this deceit, this deception. So again, through temptation, 
which in a way is Satan saying God doesn't care if you're holy like he's not holy, or through accusation, which is him saying you can never be forgiven for that. I know who you are. I know what you are. I know what you've done. And this is a theory on my part. You could almost divide a congregation like this in half, maybe. And you could say half of the people, it's really temptation to solicitation to evil. That's their big thing. And maybe the other half, it's accusation is their big thing. Or maybe for now, it's temptation. And for later, it will be accusation. He'll try to get you to sin now. And then as soon as he gets you to sin, he has a very clear record. He'll just keep bringing it up to you. And can I just say this? If you teach the holiness of God and you teach the mercy of God, you are an agent of God. If you tell people stories of God's holiness, if you teach the law, and you, and you, because the Bible says the greatest in the kingdom are the teachers of the law. And then if on the heels of teaching the law, you teach the gospel of God, you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If, however, you tell people it doesn't really matter if they sin, or you come along and you remind them of their sin, and you eagerly condemn them because of their sin, or you accuse them because of their sin, you're not an agent of God. Whose work are you doing there? You're an agent of the accuser of the brethren. Can I just say this, Christian? You have, no, you have absolutely no excuse to be an accuser of the brethren. And you think, why would I ever do that? Okay, I'll give you a little scenario in which you might do that. You feel bad about something you've done. person that you live with or love does something against you that hurts you, and they don't seem to get it. And so you want to emphasize what they did. Are you starting to track with me now? And so you're bringing it up to them. You're bringing, and maybe you're bringing it up a few examples from the past. Maybe you're just really good at bringing up examples from the past. And then without really realizing as a nice Christian wife or as a nice Christian husband, you're not serving God. You're actually falling into a demonic trap by throwing somebody's sin up against them. I know it's tempting. I know that it's very tempting to do that, but you need to realize where that's coming from. What does a believer do? He teaches the law, she teaches the law, and then she follows that with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the holiness of God and the mercy of God. These deal with both temptation and accusation and all the deception that comes from that. Now, I know what you're thinking. You were thinking, Pastor, could you give me some examples of this? I'm glad you said that. Because a while ago, that was probably 25 years ago, I was in my little study and I was preparing a lesson, Pastor Jordan, I was preparing a lesson for the teens. I had a little tiny teen group in the, uh, that met in the foyer of our little uh, chapel that we were starting a church in. And a handful of kids would come. They'd come kind of late, and they'd sit in a little circle, and I'd teach them. And I loved those kids. They were sweet kids. They were going to go out and face the world, and I was concerned for them. And I thought, well, I need to write something that will help them realize that Satan wants to destroy them. And so I stayed up late with an old paper concordance. We don't do this anymore. We have digital resources. But back in the day, we had a paper concordance that's actually a book with little tiny print in it. I took a highlighter and I went through this concordance and I marked down passages where it talks about what Satan does. And I built a little teaching 
that I would warn those kids, you can expect Satan to do this and this and this and this and this. And I can still see the faces of those kids in that Grange Hall where we had our church, sitting around that circle. And I can tell you their stories. And this is serious, what I'm going to tell you. This is life and death, what I'm going to tell you. And what I taught them from the scriptures, I want to teach you. Six things. He wants this, this is how Satan, these are, his, these are examples in the Bible of his schemes. Number one, he wants to separate you from the godly influences in your life. He wants to separate you from your godly mother, your godly dad, your godly grandma, your godly grandpa, the elders of the church. He wants to separate you from the pastors and teachers. Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Satan has demanded to have you that he can sift or separate you like wheat. He wants to ferret you out from the people that will be a safety to you and get you out on your own where he can kill you. He wants to embitter you against those who love you. That's why 2 Corinthians 2.11 is talking about unforgiveness, bitterness. We don't want to be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his devices. Remember the incident? It was the man who sinned in such a vile and egregious way that Paul told them they need to deal with it in 1 Corinthians. They dealt with it, and then he sought forgiveness, and they didn't want to forgive him. And, they, and then Paul said, that is one of Satan's tactics. When someone has sinned in a, whore, in a unspeakably vile way, like the guy in 1 Corinthians did, he comes to genuine repentance and you don't want to forgive him, then Satan is at work. Like he was at work in him to do that evil thing, he's at work in you not to forgive him of that evil thing. Anyway, interesting, isn't it? That's what he wants to do, separate you from godly influences in your life. That's why the Bible says, and it's really important, young people, hear this, children, obey your parents and the Lord. Honor your father and your mother. One of the greatest secrets of the Bible is just that simple. And that is you always can remember what your mother would have said. You always can remember what your dad would have said. And that should always be a factor if you can possibly honor them, you want to honor them, if you can obey them. There's a time when you're on your own. In other words, when they've released you to your own authority, leave and cleave, the Bible says. You don't directly obey your mother and father, but you are respectful to them and you honor them. If you want a real help in life, I would suggest that you put that around your neck like an ornament. And that's what it says in Proverbs. You know, you wear that around your neck close to your heart, like an ornament. What would my mother want me to do? What would my dad say? Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are like, you don't know my mother. You don't know my dad. They weren't good people. They weren't godly people. Well, you understand that. You show honor to them. But you think about like Michael Landon when you think about your dad. You think about like the perfect dad, the Jesus figure. as like on the little house on a prairie guy. Whoever wrote that, I think he wrote it. I think he wrote it about himself. He was always playing the violin at night. You're not tracking with me. But anyway, you, you look for a, a, an idyllic father uh, like that. So, he, so first, he wants to separate you from godly influences. Secondly, he wants to defraud you and defile you morally. I want to say too much about this because, and here's why. Most of us, when we talk about temptation, it's like the, the sexual immorality has lights flashing. 
And so it's all we ever think about. Men are terrible this way. I love men. I'm a man. But men are terrible this way. You're like, we're so, can, can I say that? Guys, I love you and we're friends, so don't hurt me or flatten my tires. But let's, let's be honest. In the area of moral impurity, we tend to think if we can conquer that, we're the perfect guy. And we miss a zoo of other stuff because all he has to do is distract that because it has big flashing red lights. And, you know, our greed and our selfishness and the zoo of other sins behind that are just a sea of other sins. And we can be easily distracted by the one that's, you know, in light. So, yeah, that's a thing. He wants to do that. Uh, that's why it says in the marriage instructions, see to it that you're kind and good to each other, that you have relations often, you know, 1 Corinthians 7, because he says, don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you can devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Interesting. Um, 1 Thessalonians 3.5, for this reason, I could bear it no longer, and I, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and my labor would be in vain. See how Satan works? Um, First Corinthians, Timothy says, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage households, give the adversary no occasion. The slander. Some of them already straight after Satan. You see what he does? So I'll give you a quick example. If, if I ask you, if you're, you're knowledgeable about the Bible, and I would say, tell me three passages about husbands and wives, you might say, well, let me think. 1 Corinthians would be one, Ephesians would be one, 1 Peter would be one. That's what you would say. And I, and I would say, that's interesting. Let's go look at those passages. And you'd look at a, the passage in Ephesians, and it's embedded in a passage about spiritual warfare. In other words, if you want to have a good marriage, be prepared for Satan to hate on you and try to destroy that. All right? Then you go to 1 Corinthians. What does it say? The passage I just read. Don't let Satan get involved. He literally is named there. And what does it say in 1 Peter. You dwell with your wife according to knowledge. You be respectful to your husband. Otherwise, your prayers will be hindered and Satan will get in there. So I'm just asking, how many of you would like to have Satan in your marriage? How, would you, how many would like to have demons at your breakfast table? Welcome them into influence. And if he can mess you up as a couple, he can mess up your kids and your grandkids. You kind of don't want that. And here's what I believe. God is so powerful. I'm going to tell you something wonderful right now. So you don't, don't miss this part. So God is so powerful and so good and so overwhelmingly good that even when you've made terrible mistakes that you regret, God can override that stuff and he can go over generations and he can do a wonderful work even if you don't deserve it. So there, I gave you that today. So you take that home and you claim that for God to a thousand generations. I know many of you, your hearts are broken right now because things aren't the way you know you wish they could be or, but, but God isn't done yet. God isn't finished yet. And he wants you to be an example. He wants you to make right any wrongs and he wants you to continually pray and he wants you to continually love and he wants you to kind of hold your tongue until he tells you to talk or write and he's still going to use your example he wants to defile you and defraud you morally. You can expect him to work that way. He wants to separate you from godly influences in your life. He wants you to deceive you with things that have the appearance of good. And there are dozens of passages of Scripture about that. You can look in the notes to see them. 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12 speaks specifically about that, that that's going to intensify as the return of Christ comes. There are going to be more false teachers, not less false teachers. 
Well, something to think about. Mark 8, 33, he says, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, which would have been like, Neil, that would be a really shocking thing to tell somebody at the elders meeting, wouldn't it? You know, if some guy makes a contribution and then Neil goes, you get behind me, Satan, that'd be like, okay, wait a minute, Neil, are you sure? <laughs> it would be a little shocking. Jesus does this at an elders meeting one day. And Peter ends up kind of landing on his feet and accomplishing a great deal. But he was influenced by Satan at that point. And so he wants to deceive you. And any of us can be deceived. If Peter can be deceived, you can. And then number four, he wants to keep you walking in darkness and dishonesty and deceit. He wants you to believe half-truths and whole lies and things that are sort of true and have some truth in them but aren't really true. And you have to be discerning. That's why we listen to a lot of preaching and we do a lot of Bible reading and we study our Bibles carefully because we want our, our spiritual vitality depends on the truth in our minds. And, and you know, here Peter says to Ananias, you remember the incident in, with Ananias and Sapphira where they, they told a lie and they're going to get judged. They're actually going to be chastised with death. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? God, help us to be honest. And in Acts 26, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And they may, so this is the, what we're talking about. Five, he wants to snatch the word away from your heart before it bears fruit in your life. It's okay for you to get truth, but he doesn't want you to act on it, so he wants to snatch it away. And you see this in the parables. Jesus said, like, the birds are like Satan, and they come and they're going to take truth away. So this is why pastors, and uh, have some patience with me. A pastor works and works like, this works, this is so much harder work than you think you think. It looks all breezy, but you spend hours noodling on this stuff and thinking about this stuff, praying about this stuff and doing all, and then you teach it and then people like, they listen and then you hear them talking about landscaping and you're like, can we talk about the Bible for a couple more minutes before we go back to landscaping? I, I like your petunias and everything, but geez, I mean, really, you know, um, that's really cool. Your team won this year, but you know, did you hear what I just was talking about there? There's like a conflict in the heavenly and you're, you, you know, there's, yeah. So, so what is Satan sometimes doing? I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, did you just say if I talk about football at church, it's because Satan snatched the seed of the word? Maybe, maybe. I, I would just say, let the seed of the word root in your hearts. Some of our folks here, it, and they can move to the head of the class. They're the teacher's pets. They take the notes from online and study them during the week. And they hunger, you know, for God's truth. I'm like, good children. That's probably good. I mean, that's probably going to be good for you. And not everybody's oriented like that. I get it. But you should have some podcasts. You should have some YouTube videos. You should have some books. You should have some stuff where you don't let the, the evil one wants to snatch the word out of your heart before it takes root and grows He'll get you to think you did something that all, that all you really did was hear it. And that's the person who has built his house on the sand. Oh, I have a good pastor and he tells the truth and I listen to him. I don't do it, but I listen. Okay, the Bible calls that person a fool. A foolish person, you're burning your time. So, so act on, and that's why in our discipleship philosophy in our church, we say, just do any Jesus thing. Get together and talk about some Jesus thing and go do it. Just act on something. Just go obey something. 
Some, it, you don't have to have a deep Bible study. You just have to find one of the commands of Jesus and obey it in the power of the Holy Spirit and then let that get to be the thing you do and you will be a Jesus follower. I always say, people say, you know, we sometimes say a fully devoted follower of Jesus, like he's got to have all these things. And I'm like, wait a minute, did he repent? Okay, did he believe? Okay, did he get baptized? Okay, is he going to church? Is he reading his Bible? Let's start with just the, does he care about the poor? Is he nice to his wife? Let's start with one little thing at a time. Satan wants you to know a lot of stuff and do nothing. And it'd be better if you did, didn't know that much, but you did something. You know what I'm saying? So that's the thing. Six, he wants to bring you into bondage. He wants to rob you of your freedom. But he'll do that by promising license. You want to be free? You, you know, you kind of talk to young people. I love young people. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, young people, maybe old people are the same way. We just disguise it better. But we want to do what we want to do. And we don't want other people telling us what to do. Am I right? There are quiet people. There are outgoing people. But most people are willful and don't want people telling them what they got in their mind, what they're going to do. And they're going to do what they're going to do. Now, that's very dangerous. Because what do you call Jesus when you get saved? You call him the Greek word kurios. You call him Lord. It means he is the boss of your soul. It's completely counterintuitive. Okay, I'm not my own boss. This is what I was going to do today, but you're the boss. So what are we going to do today, Lord? Send me where you want to send me. Tell me what you want me to say. And if there's something I need to ask forgiveness for, I'm going to get down on my knees and ask forgiveness. If there's somebody I need to make it right with, I'm going to go make it right with them. That's why Paul said this beautiful passage in 2 Timothy 2, that the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. That means change their mind and their life leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Because they've been captured by him to do his will. Do you see that? Your loved ones, you sometimes are the one that's been deceived by Satan or demons, our false teaching, and you're kind of off. And the end of that is going to be real bad, ugly. It's going to have bad fruit. You're going to think you're in charge, but you're going to be, it's going to take over your life. But your mind could change if the Holy Spirit would give you repentance, which would lead to the knowledge of the truth. And what this points directly to, when you think about this, what this points directly to is what we sometimes call on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. On the cross, Jesus displayed the great holiness of God at the very same time that he displayed the great mercy of God and the great love of God. When we go anywhere else but the cross, we're victims of Satan and his demons. Only at the cross can we not deny his great holiness and our great failure to obey him and his great mercy and love and specifically, that is what all the armor is going to be about. That's what we're going to talk about.
You remember me telling you my story about my dog, Yoder. Remember that? It was a dog that we got in town, put him on a chain, and he lived his life in a circle of mud on the end of his chain. And then we moved to the country. We, we set him free, and he could run free. But I didn't tell you that whole story. There's more. It's not really all that fun. The gas guy came in one day in his big truck and didn't see him, and he killed him. He ran over our little dog, Yoder, and he died in front of all the kids. It was a sad day. He was, he was living in a circle of mud on the end of the chain. And I always tell kids, you don't want to live in a circle of mud on the end of the devil's chain. You want to be set free to run free. But Christians, you have to understand, but we're still at war. We're not home yet. We will be someday. But right now, we need to fight for our families. We need to fight for our nation. We need to fight for our children. We need to fight for our, we have to fight for our church. We have to push back. We have to understand how the enemy works. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, could you be more specific? Yes, I can. Yes, there's, there are actually six weapons. Uh, there are actually six parts of our armor. And we're going to go through specifically, we're going to go through them specifically. One of the boys that was sitting in those, that circle of chairs in the foyer of that little church was the boy whose name was Travis. Travis Boucher. His dad, his name Mark, and his wife's, Mark's wife's name's Nina. Mark and Nina were probably in their 29 or 30 years old when I first met them. I drove out to their house to visit them, and they had started to attend our church, and they brought their little boys, Heath and Travis. I watched Travis grow up into this strapping boy that he was. He's a football player that knew no fear, and he was like super handsome. The girls noticed Travis when he came in the room. And when you played football with him, you just kind of wanted to get out of his way because he had that kind of killer instinct. He knew no fear. And, he, and his parents said to me, if it ever helps you to tell his story, then we want you to tell his story. And he was Travis strayed from, from the Lord. I, I believe he knew the Lord, but he strayed from the Lord and got involved in things he knew he should have. He'd been warned about. And he had a terrible motorcycle accident. He was recovering from that. He came home to convalesce. But in the heaviness of the, all the things that were around him, he had a breakup with a girlfriend. And, and his dad was talking to him on the phone one night. He said, here's a passage of scripture that you should read. Do you want me to come and be with you? Travis said, no, I got to go to work early in the morning. And later that night when his brother came in, Travis had taken his life. I, I think Travis knew the Lord. But Satan wasn't done trying to mess up that kid and his family. And I tell you his story today because this is so serious. Satan doesn't love beautiful young men and precious young girls. He hates them, and he hates you, and he hates this church, and everything about it with a, with a vile hatred, with a dark and vile hatred. And he'll do everything he can to destroy everything that's good and holy and pure and right, sweet in your life. Crush it out. Stamp it out. But we have an armor from God, and we should get good at using it. Because the people that are going to be the victims of Satan are very precious to us. And they're very precious to God. So this week, if you would just take that passage and read it carefully and study it, next week, we're going to assemble again. Mark, come and we're going to assemble again, and we're going to go through the weapons of our warfare one at a time. 
And we're going to discover in scriptures exactly how to use them to effectively resist evil in our lives. Stand together. Some of you need to know Christ as your Savior. Stand, we're going to bless you. But we have couples that come here at the end of our service. And the purpose of that is so you have somebody to pray with. Or maybe you could just tell them, hey, I, I need to be a Christian. Help me. And I'll show you how to become a, a Christian. But we also have a little tradition that we ask one of the leaders of our church, an elder, to come and, and to say a word of blessing over you. And so Mark Havisto is going to do that right now.